Well, good morning again and welcome to Lakeside. We're glad that you're here with us. We're in a series entitled Reborn, and we're looking at the book of First Peter about what it means to have a new life in Christ. The New Testament, Jesus started it off when he was talking to Nicodemus early on in his ministry, and then all of Jesus' followers would use this language that coming to Christ is not just something we add on to everything else that we're already doing, and it's meant just to be a part or a component, but coming to him means experiencing a rebirth, being born again and having new life in him, and spiritually having, therefore, As many things change as happens when we experience life on this earth. There's new things that we can taste and touch and see and smell. We belong by birth to a family. Somebody had us. Somebody took care of us when we were younger or we wouldn't be here now. And where we're born in what neighborhood or town or country means we're now a part of a a nation of some kind. We have... um, We identify with even a larger group than just our immediate family or our neighborhood. And when we're reborn by God through the Spirit, we again, we start having new experiences. We can do things we couldn't do before. We have relationships that we didn't have before. We call people brothers and sisters that aren't biologically our brothers and sisters. And we belong to a kingdom that's bigger than than we can even wrap our minds around. And so Peter, as one of Jesus' first followers, is writing this letter to a series of churches, now giving them wisdom and insight about how to live out their faith in their world. But for them, to become a Christian meant they were usually a part of a minority opinion. There might have only been 10 Christians in a certain town because it was so new and so fresh and there wasn't uh, mass broadcasting media that you could, if something happened in Jerusalem, within seconds you could just find out what was going on uh, just all the way across the world. We were able to keep track of what was going on with our team in Slovakia. The moment they put up a blog, we could read it here thousands of miles away. So we have the ability to get information out quickly. But in the first century, they didn't have that ability. Something might have happened in your town and nobody else would have ever known for decades. So one of the most puzzling things for us is to say, how did the church in the first century grow so quickly and so significantly when they didn't have what we usually think we need in order to grow? The government wasn't on their side Their budgets were minimal, they were persecuted, and oftentimes outcasts in their society. But that did not prevent them from spreading like wildfire all over the place. And one of the things that Peter says that we're looking at is the one thing you can't have. It doesn't matter how good your media and marketing campaign is, there is nothing that substitutes for a life well lived. Christians taking their faith seriously, following Christ in all areas of their life, is God's evangelistic plan for this world. That we, in our lives, would submit to him completely and seek to treat other people in the way that he would treat them and love them. If we do that well, It's great if our budget increases and we can do more marketing and we can get information across, but the rest will take care of itself. 
If we don't have that, everything else is just a show where to the world we're over-promising and under-delivering. If we don't live out this new life in the way that we're supposed to, we just come across as false salesmen. But if we take seriously who Christ is and what he can do for us, there is no limit. There's no limit in terms of communication or budget or strategy. God can take lives fully committed to him and do amazing things. So that's what we're looking at in this series. And so I invite you now to open to the letter of 1 Peter, which is found in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. If you're using one of these Bibles provided for you in the pew, the passage we're going to read today is on 1015. We're going to read the second half of one chapter and the first half of another chapter, but it's all on page 1015. Here Peter is going to look at a, a different spheres of life and challenge all of the audience that's going to receive this and all the different cities to which this letter is going to live in integrity. The idea of integrity is a sense of completeness and wholeness. As I've already mentioned, to not let God just affect a part of your life, but to allow your relationship with God, your desire to follow him, to influence all of your life and the, the impact that that can have. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, here's what we read. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is where we'll conclude our reading for today. So Peter is giving us a vision for what it means to live in integrity, to have every area of our life influenced by our relationship with God. And the first thing, he's doing it all throughout the letter, but it's really clear in this part of the letter that he's encouraging this life of integrity by getting all of his listeners to look at the world from God's perspective. So if we're going to live in integrity in our faith, what we need is God's perspective on the world. We need to look at our experiences in our world, our own lives, from God's perspective. We need that if we're going to live with integrity in our faith. And if you just glance down, you'll see how many different times he refers specifically to God's will. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Verse 16, living as servants of God. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Chapter 3 and verse 4, which in God's sight is very precious. So for, for Peter, integrity is not just that we're willing to act and be consistent and so we do the things we say we do. And we honor the promises we make. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it. Because sometimes we make bad promises. Sometimes we make promises that we shouldn't make. An entire industry in our world that couldn't survive if people didn't keep their promises was the gambling industry. You can't go somewhere, make a bet, and then say, oh, I didn't mean that. No, you meant that. And you have to pay up. The whole system wouldn't survive if you could be a relativist and say, you just heard me wrong. Uh, You didn't interpret me correctly. No, no, no. You said you were putting this much down. You lost. You have to pay up. Of course, none of us would pay up if we knew we were going to lose. So that's a whole system that's built on, if you will, integrity. You have to do what you say or the whole thing collapses. But so if you're going to think about it, you have to think about it before you say something and say, is this a good thing for me to do? (laughs) Is this a good thing for me to promise? Is this a good way to use the resources that have been entrusted to me? So the goal is not just that we do what we say, but that as Christians, there's a step before that where we ask the question, what is pleasing in God's sight? What would we do if we were mindful of God? If he opened up our calendar for August and said, okay, here's your life, you got 24 hours seven in every day, seven days a week, and he was making our calendar, making our appointments, how we spent our time, what would God tell us to do with our time, talent, or treasure? 
That is the first step in living a life of integrity on mission for God, is that before we go and make all of our decisions and then consult God, we say, maybe God has an idea about what I should do with my time, what I should do with my resources, how I should live. Maybe he knows best what's right. And so we need to get his perspective on the world. And whether Peter is talking about the aspect of just being a good neighbor or being an employer or being a spouse, all throughout what he's insisting is God has an opinion. God has something to say to you and me in all these areas of our life. Sometimes we fail to realize that. We think God only cares about one part of our life. He only cares about what we do here while we're gathered together as a community on a Sunday morning. But when we go from here, he's kind of neutral. He doesn't really care and he doesn't have an opinion. If we think that, then we won't consult him. We won't ask him. We won't seek his will for the other areas of our life. And so for some of us, we allow our Christianity to actually escape from the world. We want to come here because we want to forget about all the things that we're dealing with. But when we read the Bible faithfully, it says, no, no, God's not trying to get us to escape from this world. He wants us to engage this world. He has a perspective on this world. And one of the parts that we skip over so often in John 3.16 is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But he loves the world. And so what he did in sending his son and what he now wants to do with us is not just to escape from this world, but to engage our world in all of its complexity, in all of its diversity, to try to honor him. So if we're going to have integrity in our mission, we have to seek God's will, his perspective, that it is possible for you and I to do things that please him, that make him smile, and, con- and also, therefore, things that displease him, that dishonor him. And Peter is saying, God has a perspective on this world. What you and I need to do is to try as much as we can to understand it and to get it. And when we look at God's perspective on the world, we'll see our opportunities in the world. As I've already mentioned, this passage is kind of broken up into three different avenues of our regular life. There's first just being neighbors. He's saying, honor the emperor, be good citizens, do good, so that nobody, even when they accuse you and they say just foolish things about you, your life will be so well lived that they'll look foolish for what they're saying. In the first century, this is what it looked like for these believers. Okay, if they became a part of a Christian church, there were certain public events that they would no longer go to because to attend the public event, you were worshiping the emperor. The activities, the party, the celebration, the food, it was all sort of a glorified worship service of the Roman emperor at the time. So now these people, they become believers and they say, I, I can't go to that. I can't participate in the worship of what I don't believe in anymore. And so they would stay at home. And other people in the town would say, well, where's so-and-so? You know, she used to be the life of this party and I don't, I don't see her coming around anymore. Or where did he go? I mean, he was always here. Look, you knew he was here. He was always on time. They're not here anymore. Well, they just stay home by themselves and sometimes they get together. They get together, what do they do? Sometimes when they get together, they, they celebrate this meal and they say, this is the blood that was, bro- this is the body that was broken and this is the blood and 
what do they do? I don't know. They do something with blood and something with breaking bodies, and, and I don't know. But they would have been accused of, and, and we have the literature of Roman leaders accusing them of cannibalism, all kinds of weird things. And Peter's saying, they're not going to understand you. They're not going to understand why you're not doing what they're doing, and they're not going to understand what you're actually doing. So you really need to make sure that your life is lived in such a way that they say, but that can't be true. I can't, I can't believe about you that you just hate us all, and that's why you're not coming, because you're like, really nice to me. You haven't started treating me with any less compassion or kindness. You just don't do some of the things you did. But everyone's suspicious of them now. And so Peter has to say to them, look guys, the onus is going to be on you to demonstrate that you're not this crazy cult. Because you're the one who's changed. You're the one who's not doing things you used to do. And they're suspicious of you. So verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And the verse before, if you do this, you'll put to silence the foolishness of ignorance of ignorant people. So they're being accused of all kinds of things. And Peter is saying to them, when you get God's perspective on the world, you'll see the opportunities you have. And it's fascinating what he does. He looks at three different areas of life, being a neighbor, being an employer, and being a spouse. And he specifically mentions in all three of those the position of the person that has the least amount of rights and authority. He looks at, he says, honor the emperors. He's not talking to the emperors. He's not talking to the leaders. He's talking to the citizens that don't have, don't have a form of government like we do. So they have very little rights. Then when he thinks of the employer-employee relationship, he doesn't address the masters. He addresses the slaves. When he thinks about marriage, he doesn't mention the husbands first. He mentions the wives. If you were a wife in the first century, you had almost no rights no inheritance rights, no property-owning rights. So in each instance, when he thinks about all these different areas, he writes to the person who's on, if you will, the raw end of the deal. And he says to all of them, you don't need a change in your position or status before you can start doing everything that God wants you to do. And so to all of the citizens that are exiles that are being kicked out by the emperor, he doesn't say, you guys need to lead a revolution, become a terrorist organization, get power, and then when you have power, then you can start doing what God wants you to do. When he thinks of the master and the slave relationship, he doesn't write and say, what you need to do is revolt, and then when you become the master over slaves, then you can do God's will. He specifically highlights the person with less authority in the equation to say to them, your position, your status has no barrier on your ability to accomplish God's will for your life. Could you imagine being a slave and hearing 1 Peter read and someone saying to you, you matter to God and you right where you are can make a difference for God. We we can quickly get into a debate about whether it's condoning it or not. Is the Bible giving permission for this kind of relationship? Peter is writing to people who in their day, they don't have any rights. They can't appeal to a court of law. 
When they can, it's very, very limited. And he is writing to them to encourage them to say to them, with God, being reborn by his spirit, they have what they need to do his will in the world. They don't need to wait until something else happens before they can start serving and honoring him. He's already by his spirit because of what Christ has done for them. He's saying to them, look, you have opportunities every day. You have opportunities every day to make an impact for God, to be a living testimony of this witness. Another reality, just for sake of clarity, when Peter is thinking about the connection between masters and slaves, slavery wasn't in the first century often what it became in the United States and in other parts of the world in the 17th and 18th century. Oftentimes, it was a type of service that you entered into voluntarily so that if, if Peter could come to our 2013, if he could come to Akron, Ohio, and he could have a conversation with us and say, okay, so you're legally obligated and bound to somebody else for the car that you drive. Well, I am. You're legally obligated and bound for the home you live in. Well, yeah, I am. You're legally bound and obligated to somebody for the clothes you're wearing if you put it on credit. Well, I am. Say, okay, you sound like a servant. That's what we had. People would accept serve. They they would want to move to a new city and they would say, I'll come and I'll work for you and I'll work for you for two years and if I'm faithful to that two years of work, then I can have my freedom. So more often than not, what they're dealing with in the first century is not what we experienced where you had no say in the matter and it was only by the fact that you were born into a certain race that you became a slave. So nothing in the New Testament is condoning later expressions of slavery that were experienced in this world. It's just a key historical point that we need to realize. But here still, a servant, by agreeing to say, I'm going to work for you for two years to get my freedom, Peter is saying, if you've now become a Christian, you can't go to your boss and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I realized I don't have to honor the promise I made to you. So there's nothing about becoming a Christian that means you don't have to honor the commitment you made. Or if you say, well, look, I don't serve the emperor. I don't worship him. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to obey the laws of the land. I serve Jesus now. Say, whoa, whoa, don't use me as an excuse to now no longer honor the institutions that are in place. And if you were married and you became a believer and your spouse did not become a believer, you could not say, hey, I'm a Christian now, I don't have to be married to you. You're saying, you, no, you're, the, becoming a Christian should not make you have any less integrity in all the promises and the commitments that you've made. So if when you were married, you were married to a non-Christian, you are not permitted to use them not being a Christian as an excuse for you being unfaithful to the promises that you made. You can't say, now that I'm a Christian, I'm only going to work for Christian employers. You might want to, but that isn't what you now have the right to do because you're a Christian. He's saying, what I'd rather you think of is that now you have this opportunity to witness to these other people that aren't believers. You got an employer that's an unjust? Do you look at him with hatred or do you look at him as someone who also needs the gospel? 
Do you have a spouse who doesn't believe what you believe? Are you saying, man, I just wish I was out of here? Or are you saying, this person's kind of stuck with me. I have an opportunity to witness to them. I have an opportunity to share with them what I have. The government's making all kinds of laws and decisions that don't reflect what you believe. How do you view that? Is that a barrier to you doing what you want to do? Or is that an opportunity for you to do exactly what God wants you to do? Well, you you won't get there if you weren't with us on the first point. If you don't have God's perspective on the world, then all of these realities that people in the first century are facing, they won't look like opportunities. They'll look like barriers. These are the things we need to get rid of. These are the things that we need to get away from. And if we can just be free from all of them, then we can really do what God would want us to do. But Peter is saying to each of them, no, these are opportunities. If you're in the lowest class in society and the emperor just really doesn't care about you, God cares about you. If you have an unjust boss who to him or her, you're just a name and a number, you are known and named and loved by your maker and you can serve him. And if you feel like you're stuck in a relationship with someone who does not share your priorities or values, saying there is your heavenly father who is right there with you, that if you love him enough and you seek to honor him enough, your life can become so attractive to the unbelieving spouse that you can win them with your gentleness, with your character, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight. So he's saying to all of them, you have opportunities Again, not to escape the realities of your everyday life, but to engage them for him. Now, how can we do this? Well, it's kind of inserted in the middle of this passage, but I think it's appropriate to be where we end. When we get God's perspective on the world and see all of these opportunities that are in the world, then eventually we have to also reflect on Christ's example for the world. It almost seems like it's an interruption in the flow of thought when we read the passage beginning in verse uh, 20 to the end of 25. Where do we all of a sudden get this description of Jesus and what Jesus went through when he's talking about being good neighbors, being hard workers, and being good spouses? Well, if we're going to do what God wants us to do, we have to keep Christ's example at the very forefront of our minds. Now think about this. Who's writing this letter? Peter. Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. Peter, who was not only one of the 12 disciples, but one of the three who was there when the most intimate experiences took place of his Savior on the world. Peter was one of the ones there when Judas came to betray Jesus. And with Judas, Roman soldiers. And what was Peter's first reaction? he pulled out a sword and he went after one of the guards. Peter was there when Jesus was being treated unjustly. So when he writes these words, when he was reviled, when he suffered, 
when he was persecuted. We're getting this from the, one of the guys that was right there and witnessed it up front. His reaction was, we have to fight back. We can't just let this happen. We have to fight back. And Jesus rebuked him and said, if you're going to follow me, I'm not asking you to fight for me. If you're going to follow me, I am not asking you to fight for me. And so he heals the man that Peter attacked. And from that moment on, takes off of the table for Peter that being a good disciple means harming anybody else for my sake. So I'm not giving you permission to fight for me like that. Jesus is arrested. He's taken Peter has no idea what's going on, doesn't know how to process it. He, gets, he wants to stay close to Jesus just to find out what they're going to do to him. And now Jesus is getting punished even more significantly. It's not just a kiss of betrayal. They're actually beating him. And somebody says to Peter, don't you belong with him? Aren't you one of his disciples? He says, no, 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 not me. Not me. And three times he denies his relationship with Jesus. So first he tries to fight for it, and then he tries to flee from it. And after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he invites Peter into a conversation, and he says to him, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my disciples, if you're going to build this church, neither of those are legitimate options. You cannot fight for me that way And you cannot, when I need you most, flee. Well, then what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to stand there and suffer. What? I mean, look back down at the passage. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Said, I'm asking you to follow me in a righteous and holy life that doesn't ever incur suffering because of just your own stupidity and ignorance and sin. Live your life with integrity. But when you suffer for things you didn't even do, I am asking you to endure that suffering. And as Christians, that's the tension we're always dealing with. We're called to advocate for human rights and we're called to absorb human wrongs. We advocate for human rights, and at times we absorb human wrongs. Because part of what we're advocating for is the dignity and value and worth of every human being, even the human beings that wrong us. If God so loved the world that he sent his only son, he came knowing that. These are people 
that need me so bad, when I come, they're going to punish me. They're going to reject me. They're going to misunderstand me. And so that's why I need to come. And I need to show them just how broken they in fact are and just how desperately they need me. And if there's going to be integrity in our Christian life, in following this Jesus, it's going to be in our willingness to stand with him and suffer with him. This is clear all throughout the New Testament. We have done an amazing job of erasing most of this from the New Testament. But if you'd never read a New Testament before, you should open it up and at some point say, well, that just sounds impossible. That sounds really hard. And we do everything we can to make it sound easy and simple. But somebody somewhere should object and just say, I can't do that. He's calling me to do what? And it reminds us of our very need of him in order to live for him. You don't have enough to do this. I don't have it. This isn't natural for me. For me, what's natural is to fight or to flee. And I I am a person that would just continue a cycle of violence if I was left to myself. The only way that cycle gets broken is if Christ breaks it for me and then living through me empowers me to do the same. And if we're going to have integrity in our mission, we will be the people that can acknowledge that and say that to the world. I'm not a Christian because I'm good enough or smart enough or know anything more than anyone else. I'm a Christian because I need Christ. I need him to have lived a perfect life for me and I need him to live with his power forever now through me. If he does that, I can look at all the routine and even difficult things of my life here on earth and say, those are opportunities now to serve this Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you because we need you. And we need you because we are broken, because we are weak. You see in each and every one of us a potential that we don't see in ourselves. You see a value in things that we discard and that we throw away. And Father, we desperately need your eyes, your vision on our own lives and in the experiences of our everyday routines. So Father, as we're led in song now in the form of a prayer, we ask that you would use even this very song reflecting on this message to challenge us to consider your call for everyone who names your name and desires to be a part of your mission. Amen.